We continue in our Bible study on the Gospel of Luke, and today we find ourselves in the 16th chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 16, the dead speak. On Wednesday night, we looked at that very hard parable, the unrighteous steward. The week before that, we looked at uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15, and now we come to the dead speaking in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Let's set the scene and the unrighteous steward in verse 13 and 14, Jesus concludes this way. No servant, verse 13, can serve two masters for either, either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Well, the Pharisees responding, responding to Jesus, they not only don't like what he says about not loving money and rather loving God, but they actually mock it in verse 14. They scoff at what Jesus is saying for he declares that they themselves are lovers of money. And then in verse 15, he makes it clear that their own judgment about their piety cannot be equated with God's opinion. For God looks at their hearts, he says in verse 15. Then finally, he says the essence for this parable in verses 16 and 17, by saying the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, for since the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Finally, Jesus reminds them that the law and the prophets, that is Moses, the Torah, and the prophetic writings, that they have urged already that we keep our way from greed, that we find our way to God. In fact, what we're learning here is the Messiah in no way nullifies the law and the prophets, while well, he actually affirms them. He fulfills them. Yes, we must read the law and the prophets through the messianic event, through the arrival of the Christ, but he does not nullify what Moses and the prophets have said about greed. Jesus instructs the Pharisees, they better be sure to hear and heed what the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets had told them about their love of money and their stinginess for the poor. Well, look at verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man. We arrive at the parable itself. When we read there's a certain man, we know we are at the parable itself. In fact, in 1511, we read about a certain man who had two sons. We knew a parable, the parable of the prodigal son was here. And then earlier in this chapter, in 16.1, look back at 16.1, there, there was a certain rich man. And now we come to our second certain rich man in Luke chapter 16. Well, verse 19 embodies the ancient and contemporary theology that went something like this. Look at verse 19. Now, there's a certain rich man 
And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor in every day. That ancient theology and contemporary theology seen in the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers of our day is, if one finds oneself financially blessed, this is based upon his own goodness, that God is rewarding him for his goodness. And so the Pharisees, having great riches, thought that they themselves were being applauded by the God of heaven. Notice how he's described kingly dress. He's dressed in purple. Judges 8, that's kingly dressed. Which is in contrast to Lazarus, who is, has nothing but sores and rags. And then there's a, a reference to the fact that underneath his purple garment is his fine linen, which says even the rich man's underwear was made of the most expensive fabric known. In antiquity, one might eat like this man eats once, twice, three times a year. Why meat and that sort of celebration was reserved for weddings or particular festival times. But this man had a feast every single night. He didn't just have the soup and the bread and the fruit. That would have been the daily diet of most people of antiquity. He was living in splendor every day. Margaret Atwood in Alias Grace says, For if the world treats you well, you come to believe you're deserving of it. If the world treats you well, you come to believe you're deserving of it. That's a certain rich man. Verse 20, a certain poor man. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. That is a rich man's gate. And he's covered with sores. Did you ever realize of all the parables that Jesus ever tells, this is the only character that has a name. Lazarus is the only character in all the parables that Jesus tells that has a name. Otherwise, it's an older son, a, a younger son, a certain rich man, a certain man. But the poor man, Lazarus, oddly enough, has a name. I think it is a way for Jesus to give him a measure of personhood as a poor man. And in fact, the name Lazarus means God is my help in Hebrew. So we are keyed by his name that God himself is going to help the man whose name means God will help me. Lazarus is laid every day at the gate of the rich man's property. It's a pylon here. It was a gate that would distinguish a temple or an elaborate dwelling or elaborate building. It kept the poor out and the rich in. It was a gate, a wall between the rich and the poor. Well, look at verse 21, the scraps. He was longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He was longing for the crumbs. In our earlier story, in Luke 15, we had the younger son who was longing for the pig pods and the pig mud because he was starving. It's starvation and then death. In that parable and this parable, they're both at the point of starvation and next comes death and he's longing. He knows he will never be worthy in the eyes of his community for a seat at the banquet. All he asks is the scraps they're trashing be brought so he would be able to eat something. He wants the crumbs, the leftovers 
found at the rich man's trash can. We took a trip as a church here at First Baptist several years ago to Uganda. And one of the activities we signed up was uh, after we'd done our mission work at the Uganda Seminary was whitewater rafting in the Nile. Uganda is the birthplace of the Nile. It's really deep there, 30, 40 feet deep. And we got in the little boats and it all seemed good at first. And well, then you look and there's literally a, a, a wave about as tall as that balcony. And you realize this little rubber dinghy's not gonna do well. And uh, you hold on to the rope and you go about 10 feet underwater and it really is white water. And they warn you if the crocodiles come, punch them in the nose and that doesn't make you feel any better. So we got out of the boat a lot. And that was quite humbling. We just, you could not literally stay in the boat. It could not be done. But when we got over, the, the rafting was, was to be followed by a steak dinner in the middle of the jungle in Uganda. And so there we get out of the boats. We survived. And we're having the steak dinner and chips and cola. And we noticed the Ugandan children gathering around the edges. And I really didn't think about why they were there. I thought maybe they were just staring at these strange Westerners who have entered their world to ride the raft down the river that they would never enter. And, and then we loaded up in the trucks to leave. And the minute we were in the trucks, they rushed the tables and ate the fat and the gristle and the scraps and the chips and even picked up the cola cans and drank what was left, wanting the crumbs from the table. Of course, if I had known, we all would have left our dinners completely there and not eaten them. But we were so self-satisfied, we didn't even realize why the children were gathering. I just want the crumbs, Lazarus says. The bosom of Abraham, verse 22. And it came about when the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom, uh, an idiom for the kingdom of God. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now, interestingly enough, this whole parable is about the great reversal between the rich and the poor. And when it comes to death, we reverse the order of the characters. Do you notice that? You first met the rich man, and then you met Lazarus. And now that they're dead, you meet Lazarus first, and then you meet the rich man. But the message is plain, isn't it? That death will strike both the rich and the poor. Death is no respecter of persons. Death will strike both the rich and the poor alike. Now you can imagine the kind of funeral that the rich man had. Notice the end of verse 22, and the rich man died and was buried. Did you notice there's no reference to the poor man's funeral? It would have been a pauper's event. He didn't have a lavish funeral like the rich man certainly couldn't have afforded it. So he doesn't even get the mention of a burial. But the rich man, we suppose and project would have had a wonderful elaborate funeral. We're reminded, even as this poor man is ushered to the, the idiom for the kingdom of God, Abraham's bosom, that we're reminded back to Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 23 and 24, the agony of the flame. And in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and being in torment, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in the flame. The depiction of Hades, life after death for the wicked here, is that what we see in other portions of Scripture? It's a place of torment. It's a place of thirst. It's a place of flames. It's a place divided by a great chasm between the kingdom of God and the place of torment. One of the clearest themes in all the New Testament is what I call the great reversal. That life in the next kingdom is turned upside down. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's the great reversal or the upside down theology of the kingdom of God. While on earth, the rich man lived behind the big gates and Lazarus was on the outside. Following the great reversal in the kingdom, Lazarus himself has a seat at paradise's banquet. Reclining at the bosom of Abraham like John reclined at the bosom of Jesus during the Passover. While the rich man is cut off from the portal of paradise by the great chasm. The beggar now belongs to the banquet of the kingdom for eternity. And the rich man is relegated to the place of poverty. The conclusion of the story surprises no one familiar with the songs of the Psalter, the wisdom, literature, Psalm 22. We learn that God will not ignore the affliction of the afflicted. Or Proverbs 21, where God will close his ears to the cries of those who have ignored the poor. 25 and 26, the great, great chasm. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross from there to us. Now, you notice the oddity Abraham's talking here. Abraham's talking from the kingdom of God. Abraham himself, the great patriarch of the people of God, participates in the dialogue making clear that the rich man, knowing Moses and the prophets, should not be surprised by the great reversal. In the previous life, the rich man had all the good things and Lazarus the bad things. But now the roles have been reversed on the other side. And Abraham makes clear that following the death, there's no negotiating one's assignment. You can't switch places. There's a great chasm and it's fixed. And those in agony remain in agony, and those at the banquet remain at the banquet. The word that describes the chasm in the Greek is mega. It doesn't even mean translating. There's a mega chasm between heaven and hell. Well, then he says, verse 27, speaks of his five brothers. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Realizing the hopelessness of his habitat in Hades, the rich man now pleads with Abraham, well, if I can't change my condition, let somebody go and tell my brothers. Some say, well, now at least he's thinking about someone other than himself. 
that's true to our Western minds, but in a collectivist society, his brothers and his family are extension of himself, and he just doesn't want the rest of himself to experience torment. Well, then finally, the law and prophets, 29 through 31. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone comes, someone rises from the dead. They need an additional warning. Send one, someone from the dead. Let the dead speak, says the rich man. And Abraham replies, no, they've got Moses. Moses has already told them everything they need to know. They have the prophets. If they will not heed the warning of Moses and the prophets, what makes you think they will listen to someone who rises from the dead? Moses and the prophets had spoken. Isaiah 58, is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? So when you see someone naked to cover him, do not hide yourself or ignore your own flesh. Or Isaiah 58, again, if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness. Your gloom will become like midday. Moses, the prophets have spoken. But if someone from the dead would just go and warn them, they would change their mind and change their life. They wouldn't be stepping over Lazarus at the gate. Well, think about that. Would someone rising from the dead really change things? Herod thought that in the person of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist himself might have risen from the dead or that a prophet had risen from the dead. He wasn't sure and it made him curious, but it did not lead him to repent. And interesting enough, the other character in the New Testament named Lazarus is called forth from the dead, the friend of Jesus in Bethany. And when he rises from the dead, do the Pharisees respond and repent because the dead are speaking? No, it is at that point in John's gospel, they plot out the demise of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. The dead rising doesn't seem to change the message. And when the soldiers confessed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that the stone had been removed and, and that he was alive, do the religious leaders then repent and say, oh, he was the Messiah? No, they began to lie and scheme a cover-up. The dead speaking doesn't seem to make any difference. Those who've hardened their hearts to the law, those who've hardened their hearts to the prophets, have likewise hardened their hearts when the dead speak. You know, in reality, what we have in the gospel is the dead speaking. Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead that begins the age of the resurrection. He rises from the dead with an eternal body, which wasn't done to anyone else. Poor Lazarus had to die again, did he not? And when the gospel is preached, it is a message about a crucified and a resurrected Savior. And every time the gospel is preached, the dead are speaking, the resurrected are proclaiming, and men still harden their hearts. It makes no difference if the resurrected speak, Abraham says. What about you listening on live stream or television or here in this room? 
the empty tomb of Jesus speaks and calls us to repentance. It calls us to humility. It reminds us that we are nothing without him. And the only way we get a seat at the eternal banquet is to declare ourselves sinners and proclaim him as Lord. The dead have spoken in the person of Christ and the preaching of the resurrected Jesus. We cannot brush off the idolatry of greed like the Pharisees did. And to be sure, during the ministry of Jesus, he had rich followers and poor followers, and they were all equal followers. It's not a condemnation of riches in themselves, but making them idolatrous and making them Lord is a problem. But Jesus did say, it'll be harder on the rich to imagine another kingdom because this kingdom feels pretty good to them. Listen to the words of the parable. We must take care of We must take care in how we treat both our riches and the poor who have none. Let us pray. Oh God, we're reminded today of this powerful parable to never have pride, to bring our hearts to humility. Maybe there's someone here this morning or someone watching by television that needs to hear the proclamation, the resurrection of Jesus, that even in the preaching of the gospel this morning, the dead have spoken. The tomb is empty. He has died for our sins. He's reordered our priorities. And the kingdom is first in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.